Talking about race, social justice, inclusion, or equity is complicated in today's political environment. How do educational leaders engage and support discussions about equity and keep their community together? Beverly Daniel Tatum on this Leader Chat provides perspective and advice. She has written extensively on the topic, including her recently updated book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? We are so thankful to have had the time with the wise Dr. Tatum. You will be too. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, how are you? My name is Jeff Rose and welcome to Leader Chat. I am excited and I'm actually very proud. I'm not proud of the name of this Leader Chat or um, I'm just proud of the people that we're having uh, as, as guests. I, I learn every single week and having an opportunity to sit with these leaders that I admire, with educators and actually practitioners or authors or experts in a particular field, I don't know is necessarily exactly what it's like just for the listener, but as one who actually gets to engage in this conversation, with these leaders and experts. I'm just learning so much. It's an incredible time in my career because of what they're bringing. And I certainly believe and hope you feel the same way. So once again, you're listening or engaging in this leader chat in one of a few ways. One, if you're a, a member of our leadership circle, you may be watching this. If you're a member and you know, you're busy, which is common, you're going to end up watching the rerun. And others actually engage via our podcast, Leader Chat. And uh, once again, today is, um, it, all it does is, is elevate the kind of content because of this impressive guest for which I actually have a, um, a, a really interesting and wonderful history with. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long period of time. So today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be uh, welcoming here um, any minute, Beverly Daniel Tatum, and we will be talking about talking race and equity. And if you are going to engage in that discussion, there's no better person to have with us uh, than Dr. Tatum. So let me start with her bio. And of course, um, I've had to shorten it and condense it, um, but she'll be able to add to or subtract uh, from when we bring her on. Dr. Tatum began her career in higher education in 1980 as a lecturer in the Department of Black Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In 2002, she was appointed to acting president of Mount Holyoke College before assuming the presidency at Spelman College. She was actually there as a president for 13 years. Along with distinguishing herself as a notable educator, Tatum has enjoyed a celebrated career as a clinical psychologist. Tatum also has written two widely acclaimed, acclaimed books, Assimilation Blues, Black Families in White Communities, Who Succeeds and Why, and Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, and Other Conversations About Race, which was named a 1998 multicultural book by the National Association of Multicultural Education. In addition to serving as president of Spelman College, Dr. Tatum has served as a member on many boards, including the Board of the Association of American Colleges and Universities in Washington, D.C., and the Woodruff Arts Center Board in Atlanta, Georgia. 
She is also active in many professional organizations, such as the American Psychological Association, American Educational Research Association, and the American Association of University Women, among others. So at this point in time, it's, it's absolutely my privilege to welcome uh, Dr. Tatum here with us. So thank you so much for being here. And so my first question is, number one, what did I miss in, um, in your bio? And listen, we're living through some very interesting times. So how are you doing these days? Well, I'm doing fine. And I have to say your introduction was very lovely and gracious. The one thing I would mention, because my publisher would really want me to, is another book, which is called Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Resegregation. That one um, came out in 2007. And then, of course, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria was updated in 2017. And uh, I'm excited to have this opportunity to talk with you about the ideas in that book and others. Looking and I do have a, a variety of uh, some questions about that book specifically. So um, just, just I, I appreciate bringing that up. And like back to that question of how, like, how are you? These are really strange times we're living through. I, I can only assume that you would agree. What is, what is it, what is it like for you to um, have had the experience and the knowledge that you have and, you know, all the things that kind of our country is going through right now? Well, it is a challenging time. There's no doubt about that. And I, I have to say when the COVID-19 pandemic started, I thought, well, this is going to give me personally a moment to pause because all of my speaking engagements, the travel I had planned to do, all of that got canceled as we all uh, started to sequester ourselves at home if we were able to do that. And, uh, and so I thought of it initially as kind of a sabbatical period. But then uh, the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, um, set my phone to ringing nonstop because many people were thinking about, gosh, how can we address issues of racism and social justice? Um, there was an awakening across the nation where many people said, you know, we have not been talking about this. We need to be talking about it. And so I have been spending a lot of time on Zoom uh, talking to colleagues and organizations around the country about what does it mean to really engage in conversations about race in a productive way within an organization, within a school? With How do parents talk to their kids about these issues? There's all kinds of conversations that people have wanted to have. That's kept me pretty busy, I have to say. And so at this moment, um, in November of 2021, I'm getting ready to travel again. Uh, this time I'm going to the UK. My book came out in May of 2021, released by Penguin Press there. And so I'm doing a little mini book tour, uh, leaving soon for that trip. So I'm excited about that, but, but sad in some ways that we're still struggling with these issues. You know, 20 years after the original release of my book, now 20 plus years, um, I would have thought we would have made more long lasting progress. We made progress, but there's been pushback against that progress. I feel we're in kind of a, we're in, we've experienced some ba some backward motion and I'm hoping we'll be moving forward again. You use the word uh, awakening. Um, you know, that 
I, which I would agree. I think that there was this awakening that we've had. But in the meantime, um, at least from my perspective, so feel free to mention your own, it seems as though our, our intention to try to um, lean in to the discussion based upon that awakening has been um, a little messier and far more political than uh, I would have hoped for. And I, yes. I find myself really struggling through that um, probably more than anything because I do think there was an opportunity and I just, um, I'm, I'm having a hard time watching what I see happening, especially as it relates to issues around school districts and kids and our inability to actually use this opportunity to do what I would hope is the right thing. Am I, am I on the right track or what are you, are you seeing the same thing? No, I, I, I absolutely see the same thing. I, I see that, um, in 2020, after um, the murder of George Floyd, we heard and saw a lot of organizations, schools, universities, corporations, lots of different organizations asking the question, how do we become an anti-racist organization? How do we become a more inclusive organization? How do we address issues of social justice in ways that make sense for our organization? Fast forward to the fall of 2021, we're hearing a lot of dialogue about how can we stop this conversation? <laughs> how can we, uh, you know, let's not have conversations about race. Let's not teach the real history of the United States. Let's not talk about these issues, it makes people feel uncomfortable. And that in some ways is predictable pushback. If you read my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, I talk about racial identity development at the individual level, right? And one of the things we know, for example, is that for many white people, as they start to recognize racism and learn about it, there's a certain level of discomfort, which sometimes leads a leads to a desire to stop learning, to to say, you know, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to continue this conversation. And in some ways, I think we are seeing that individual pattern writ large in our society. You know, an an awakening and awareness followed by a desire to stop the conversation. This is not what I bargained for. Let me just shut it down. And I think there is that tension between those who want to continue the conversation, continue the progress, and those who feel threatened by it, perhaps, or want to preserve the status quo, or just don't want to have to endure the struggle that is endemic to really trying to shift um, systems that have been in place a long time. I told you this before we started the show, as it relates to um, the your book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? It was um, one of my, my uh, first uh, papers that I, I wrote in graduate school was uh, focusing on a lot of the pieces and uh, things that you brought to light in that book. And um, a, a few things that will always stick with me because I've led book groups on that topic in my work um, since then, um, I know that I will remember, right, the, the concept of understanding blackness um, and whiteness in a white context, right? Blackness in a white context and whiteness in a white context. Um, also, you know, the fact that 
racial identity um, is, 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 a, is a cornerstone of that work that you describe. With those, the, kind of those themes, so to speak, what do you envision in the future? Or maybe what do you hope for? Because you did mention that, you know, it is difficult. And when it is difficult, people have a hard time leaning into it or they lean out. I yes. guess, what are your hopes um, as opposed to maybe your struggles based upon what you currently see? You know, a hope would be that people would lean in and find joy there. And what do I mean by that? Um, you know, I've had the privilege of working with educators for a long time. I, uh, in the 1990s, was doing a lot of professional development with teachers in the greater Boston area. And some of those teachers are now approaching retirement. You know, they've been in the trenches and they're retiring. And not long ago, I heard from one of those educators who took a course with me, read, read the 1997 version of my book, um, her, her understood those issues, and really tried to apply it in his career as an educator. And at the time of his retirement, he wrote to me to say, this has been one of the greatest sources of joy in my life to be able to engage my students, my colleagues in these conversations to talk about um, unlearning racism at school. And what I really appreciated about that was the individual who wrote to me was also someone who, when he first started on that path, said, I don't like this. I don't like what you're saying. I disagree with what you wrote, you know, um, with someone who really felt like it was too uncomfortable. But he kept at it and got to a place where he really felt like it was liberating. I'm the, yep, the person I'm talking about is a white man who, as I said, was initially uncomfortable with the content, but got to a place where he really embraced it and began to share it with others and really made that a cornerstone of his career going forward and now looks back at it as one of the most meaningful things he could have done as an educator. And I think for a lot of people, if they give themselves the opportunity to really listen and engage with others whose experience is different from their own, if they really think about the ways in which our students need access to this information so that they can be effective citizens in an increasingly diverse environment. If we give ourselves that opportunity, we will see um, real benefits. And that's what I hope for. I hope for the benefits. I hope for the joy. Dr. Tatum, you said the, the 1997 version. I, I know what you meant because I, I read the 1997 version back then. Um, yeah. But just for our listeners, can you make sure that you describe to us why you said 1997 version as, as opposed to maybe some of the work that you've, you've recently done? Would you be willing to Sure. Well, of course. Yes. Yeah, so um, I wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race originally in the late 90s. It was published for the first time in 1997. And I made reference to that version of my book because it was then that the colleague I was talking about encountered those ideas. But the good news is that book had long life and it um, was read by lots of people in the 2000s and uh, I updated it slightly in 2005. And then in 2017, I completely rewrote it in some ways um, to add context of what had happened over the last 
20-year period. From 1997 to 2017, what happened in our society that would cause us to think about questions related to race perhaps differently than we had in 1997, and what had remained the same. When I was working on the 2017 version, um, friends would say, well, the title of this book is Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? That was the title in 1997. Are they still doing that in 2017? Of course, if you work in a school, you know the answer is yes. Um, but what has changed over that 20-year period? School leaders will certainly know that one of the things that's changed is our demographics, our population. Um, today, if you are a child born in the United States today, you are being born into a world that is not dominated by one group in terms of population numbers, right? Um, babies born today are part of a truly pluralistic cohort less than 50%, just barely, but less than 50% of babies born today are white. So there is not a white majority among those babies. The largest ethnic group in that population would probably be Latinx babies, you know, maybe something like 25% and black babies and Asian American babies and multiracial babies, a fast growing population. But those children, who will be first graders in a few years and then in high school and then in college, those young people will be navigating a society that is truly multiracial. When I was born in the 1950s, 90% of the US population was white, 10% everybody else. To be able to say, the child born today is part of a truly pluralistic society, that's a big shift. And a lot of that shift took place in those 20 years between 1997 and 2017, largely because of immigration. You know, the, the 2017 version, um, when I, I had assumed I had already read it because of the title. And so yes. I, I didn't go grab it right away. I, I really did, I thought, well, I've read it, I've talked about I it, read like that I said, um, until my mom bought me the version and sent it to me for a gift. And so there, there, are, um, there are significant portions of the book that are actually very different. Um, yes. So I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted you to bring that up because I was one who just had assumed I've read that, um, but I really hadn't because of the, the additions or changes were actually, uh, like I said, significant. Well, you know, when I think about what had changed between 97 and 2017, I really identified four things. I call them the four Ps. One was population. Our population shifted much more diverse today than it was even 20 years ago. Our politics changed. Over um, that 97 to 20, over that 20 year period, we experienced four different presidents. The first, Bill Clinton, and he launched in 97 a, conver a national conversation about race. We don't remember much about that. I have to say it was overshadowed by his political challenges, his impeachment trial, other things. But um, he was followed by George W. Bush, who was looking to unite the country in the face of 9-11, uh, which happened shortly after he became president. Um, and certainly it wasn't a time, uh, President Clinton said, 
We are a nation at peace and experiencing prosperity. This is a time when we should take on the challenge of talking about race. But in 2001, we were not at peace. We were under attack. And also during President Bush's tenure, we experienced the start of the Great Recession in 2008, um, the greatest loss of net wealth for many, particularly black and brown families. It was a very difficult time, high rates of unemployment. But 2008 also marked the election of President Barack Obama. And when he was elected, many people began to say, well, we don't need to talk about race anymore. Look what we've achieved. We've elected the first black president. We are now a, quote, post-racial society. This is not not a conversation we need to have. But in 2016, the year before my 2017 edition came out, we experienced the election of President Donald Trump and the election process that led up to it, a very hotly contested election between him and Hillary Clinton. Um, there was so much polarizing language as part of that election process. And certainly rather than saying we need a conversation about race or racism, some would argue that white supremacy was given a boost during that election. Certainly white supremacist organizations became much more visible. And in fact, shortly after um, my book had been submitted for publication in 2017, we experienced the um, horrible death of um, that resulted from the March, the right, the conservative march that took place in Virginia uh, and led to the death of Heather Heyer and um, a lot of violence associated with the resurgence of into the public eye, white supremacist activity. So if we think about changing population and changing politics, we can also think about polarization, greater polarization in 2017 than we experienced in 1997. And some of that might be related to the use of social media and the emergence of cable news channels that, you know, where you can sort of choose your own variety of the truth and stick to that and not be exposed to other points of view. Um, and the, the polarizing nature, so much of our discourse is, I think, something that is, that we are facing in the 21st century in ways that we didn't in the 20th. And finally, the fourth P is psychology itself. I am a psychologist and researchers, social scientists have been studying questions around things like stereotype threat and what we call uh, implicit bias and microaggressions. These are terms that have emerged within the field of psychology over the last 20 years. They weren't really part of our lexicon in 1997. So I wanted to really not only update the social context, but also update the social science that's re that's reflected in the book that I wrote. Okay, so if, if like, I have a quote here from Can We Talk About Race, mm -hmm. um, your book, and you were actually referring back to uh, what are all the black kids doing sitting together in the cafeteria. You said, um, this quote was, why, why, were, why were they sitting together then? It was an affirmation, a time to relax, a creation of community based upon a shared experience of being 
one of a few in environment unaccustomed to our presence. Did all black students share in it? No. Were white students intentionally excluded from it? Not in any active way. So you, as you talked about the population shift already, I, I do want to zero in on this kind of the middle two P's, if possible, the, you know, sure. the politics and the, and the polarization, because what yes. we're finding in schools, in school districts across the country, is um, they have a very significant target on them. They want to talk, potentially, because it's the right thing to do about issues of equity and race and so forth, but at this point in time, in some ways, they are being disallowed or at least being distracted because of the incredible polarization of communities that are all landing in the laps of the educational leaders and school boards. Yes. And so that being the case, seeing what you're seeing, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on, on what advice would you provide to them as they may want to do the right thing, but they almost can't? Um, what, what are your thinking? You know, one of the things that I've observed, both in the news that I read and in the conversations that I hear, is that what we see is um, the tyranny of the loudest voices. That there are people shouting, literally shouting, um, to say, I don't want this or don't do that. But there are other people who disagree, but whose voice is not as loud. Uh, you know, back in the days of, um, you know, I'm a child of the 60s. I remember the phrase, the silent majority. I think we are experiencing the impact of a silent majority. What surveys tell us is that there are a majority of Americans who recognize that these conversations are important, yet they're not shouting as loudly as the people who don't want the conversations to happen. You know, much like most people recognize the safety that comes from wearing a mask in the midst of a pandemic. But there are other people who are shouting at a loud voice saying, I don't want my kid to have to wear a mask. Um, it doesn't, there is polarization but the nature of the polarization, in my view, is that there are people who are not speaking up, you know, going on about their business, trying to keep their heads down, get their work done, you know, take care of their families, um, but who understand that change is necessary. And then there are other people who don't want change, and yet those voices are being amplified in part through their own efforts, but through the efforts of a relatively small, but nonetheless vocal minority. So what do we need to do? One thing we need to do is empower everyone's voice. We want to hear from everyone. If we could hear from everyone, I think we would recognize that there may be more consensus than we know. We also need to listen. Um, in a time of polarization, listening cannot be um, undervalued. It is really important 
to take the time to listen to another person's perspective, people shout when they feel they haven't been listened to. And so, but listening does not connote agreement. <laughs> I remember when my one of my children was a teenager, he would make an argument about something that he wanted to do or a point he wanted to make, and I would disagree. And he would say, you're not listening to me. And I would say, I am listening, but I'm not agreeing, right? I can listen and still not agree. Um, and so we need to be able to listen to each other respectfully. We still may not agree, but we may be able to find some common ground where we are able to say, okay, what exactly is it about this conversation that is disturbing to you? I don't want my child to may to be to be made to feel guilty in class for being white. Well, that is a concern. And the good news is you can teach about these issues without causing that to happen. Um, a skilled educator who understands issues of racial identity can bring in voices of white allies who have modeled speaking up for social justice in a way that gives kids who wonder about the pain of our history, the opportunity to see that there were always multiple voices. It's not just a story of victim and victimizer. It's more complicated than that. Let's bring the complexity to the story so that not only do we learn about victimizers, we also learn about the allies in the story. We don't only learn about victims, but we also learn about the ways that people who were targeted resisted their own victimization, the ways in which they exerted agency. Nobody wants to be portrayed as a victim. Nobody wants to be portrayed as a victimizer. But if we understand the complexity of our history, the whole picture, we will see that it's possible to do that without disempowering students of color, without shaming white students. So, uh, Dr. Tatum, in our, in our uh, basically our leadership circle, we call it, uh, most of our strategies are kind of what we say is tables, uh, circles are better than rows, right? We yes. have strategies where our members come together and help one another. Mm -hmm. um, this is the one time that we actually provide content to them, right, or at them. But if you and I were uh, to imagine that we're at a round table, with um, some skilled educators like you just described. Yes. Ones that um, actually know how and have the ability to really kind of embrace this discourse on racial identity and engage kids and community in that topic. What I'm seeing is um, some of those skilled educators are seeing this as an opportunity to lean in more than ever. They're saying, I know it's very turbulent uh, politically, but now's yes. the time. Yes. And then others are saying, now's the time, but I can't. I feel paralyzed because yes. I know the political ramifications of me doing that, which yeah. will only end up badly, not just for me, but for us collectively. So if mm -hmm. we're around table with those leaders and educators who want to and are skilled, you know, what would be your final words to them, your pragmatic brass tacks? Here's what I recommend you think of and actually maybe even think of doing soon, sooner rather than later. Yeah. 
courage. <laughs> we have to underline the word courage, you know. I'm reminded of that book title, Profiles in Courage, right? Um, no one wants to throw themselves into a burning fire, right? Nobody wants to, you know, make themselves a sacrificial lamb. At the same time, often we are more frightened than we need to be. How, what do I mean by that? Sometimes what we imagine will happen is worse than what actually is likely to happen. Um, you know, when I worked for early in my career, I'm a trained clinical psychologist. Early in my career, I worked as a therapist. And sometimes you'd sit with a client who would be worried about something. You know, if I do X, you know, it will go badly. And then my question would be, well, let's imagine it goes badly. Then what happens? You know, <laughs> then yeah. what happens? Yeah. You die. You know, I mean, you know, um, even if the worst thing happens, what is that worst thing? Well, I know sitting in a superintendent seat, maybe the worst thing is you get fired. And who wants to be, you know, you need your job. You want to support your family. Um, but at the same time, I also know that you want to feel as though you are doing the right thing for your students and helping them be successful. And if it's possible to educate your audience, educate your parents, educate your school board about why kids who are growing up in a multiracial society need to learn how to engage effectively in that society. Because if they don't, otherwise, they will be social dinosaurs. Do you really want me to create a school where we're educating social dinosaurs? I don't think that you want for your children. So let's talk about how we can do what kids need in a way that will prepare them for the future, make them as successful as they can possibly be. And yes, parents may feel some discomfort, but you know what? And sometimes kids do too, but they feel discomfort in calculus. We don't tell them not to learn it. They, you know, we, we help them master it. So let us help our students master the things that are making them feel uncomfortable, just as you want me to help them master their vocabulary list and master their literacy skills and master their you know, computational skills. A lot of discomfort in that geometry class, I'm going to tell you. But we still expect students to learn it. So let's be clear that all of this is important to their development. So I'll, I'll end with this. Um, what I hear you saying is it's, this should not be a matter of, of if. It should be a matter of how. Exactly. Um, and you know, a, a couple of things that we know. We actually know through a lot of research that we we learn at our um, highest potential levels when we are uncomfortable, as long as we feel safe. Yes. So if you can actually promote discomfort simultaneous to being safe, that is where we as adults and kids, by the way, will learn at our highest levels. Right? The goal is yeah. not comfort and cozy. The goal yes. is sometimes discomfort and safety. That's where, yes. that's like the sweet spot of learning. Um, Absolutely. And to your point, like a Stoic philosopher would say, is nothing is ever as bad or as good as you think it's going to be. You just need to consider both ends and then strategically plan, right? Exactly. So, um, Dr. Tatum, this, this, is, um, this is a gift for me to talk to you.
It's a, um, it's, it's, it's just a really, really big deal and an earmark in my career so far. So I just, I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you've done and are doing um, and for this time that you've given us. I know that I've learned a lot and our members will learn so much. I really appreciate you. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor. Oh, by all means. And so um, our, our, our paths will cross again. Um, once again, thank you so much. We really appreciate you, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, um, that was a phenomenal discussion. Um, I, I don't even have to hope. Um, I know um, what you have probably taken away from this conversation, like I have. I'm so appreciative for Dr. Tatum and the work that she's done. Um, let's make sure that we pay attention. We muster the courage needed to, to lean into this um, conversation that actually is our, our moral imperative to do. Everyone, be well.